Bookworm Games, episode 44. Men have courage and have appetites. The grandiloquent trek continues, moving right along and embracing a number of shorter chapters of Xeno Gears in this episode. Getting out of Kislev at last, this is a part of the game where the pace really picks up. It's hard to beat for sheer enjoyment. Includes some of my favorite moments. From flying high on the secret weapon, to drifting on the sea, reuniting with Bart and Ellie, and dueling underwater and on the card tables of the Thames. Ellie is taken and returns, but by the end of these chapters we'll find ourselves without Faye for a time. Let's see how this all works out. As mentioned, after the Night Purge, you have the option to choose your party for the first time, as only three can travel together. Maybe whomever you leave out goes wherever it is all your gears go when you're not using them. The gears reappear at the press of a button, conveniently. But if you want to change your party member, for now you have to return to the Wildcat Bar. The waitress talks to someone off-screen, presumably the developer, and she seems very uncomfortable about the whole thing. The M-disc you pick up in the back alley can play a few songs on the jukebox, but there isn't anything else to do in Norchun for now. The prison block is cordoned off since the attack, and you're still wanted by the authorities, though the individual guards seem disinclined to press the matter, especially once Rico bursts in. And so it's on to the military installation. Your strongest party is objectively Rico, Ellie, and Faye, based on their gears, but you can bring Satan instead for old time's sake, at least to make your way over the world map to the hangar in the side of the mountain. The enemies on the overworld can be stomped aside easily if you ride gears, but you'll have to cross the forest at the midway point, at least on foot. Ellie should be picking up some new ether attacks around there, capable of damaging groups of foes but it's also important to make sure she learns at least a combo skill or two for use in the upcoming boss fights. In the base, all is quiet, and Hammer is there to tell you you can tune up and get prepared for the infiltration. He's already unlocked the doors for you, and he'll catch up along with whomever else you left out of your party once you reach the Goliath airship. The factory varies the combat a little by having groups of enemies pop out a bit like a rail shooter, although the actual fights, of course, still take place as turn-based affairs. There are also random encounters sprinkled throughout, no different in terms of difficulty, but feeling less special somehow. Whatever law of nature it is that prevents a party larger than three from attacking the base, fortunately, it seems to limit the waves of the defenders that come against you as well to two or three mechs at a time. Some of the Hatamoto variety spin their spears. Some are little gunners, and they're often accompanied by teams of mechanics who heal them, but will also occasionally heal your party by a thrown wrench, which otherwise clatters aside for a single point of damage. Now, one treasure box is down a passage too narrow to reach in your gears, so you'll have to dismount to collect it. And if an encounter should open during that time, you might be faced with gears while not riding in your own, like those tiny mechanics you battle. 
Luckily, though, a new option will appear in the fight command ring to call the gear. This dynamic is extended in the way you have to use the lifts and conveyor belts to navigate the area. As you are to your gears, so the gears are themselves tiny in comparison to this huge base and its secret weapon, the airship. It's all a matter of scale. In the final part of the dock, a difficult boss fight against the FIS-6, protected behind its heavy shield and armor, and also able to upgrade its speed and power, can go one of two ways. Either you defeat it quickly before it does that move repeatedly, and you can only manage that with boosters and combo attacks, or it'll simply overheat if the battle drags out too long. And you take off then in the Goliath. Luckily, Satan is able to fly it. Uh, it's not explained quite how, and no one apparently planned that far ahead. And you're not pursued by anyone from Kislev either. Maybe this is the reason for Rico's silence aboard the ship, as much as for Hammer's glee, this confusing lack of pursuit. All Ellie can do, she was pursued from this place before, is marvel at how nearly her country came to ruin at the wrong end of this huge craft which they knew nothing about when they sent her on her raid. The high-flying wings theme plays its variation on the overworld music, but rather than handing off control of the airship to the player, as you might have expected, Satan instead calls your attention to the front panel, where a familiar dark gear is flying straight for you. This Goliath is going to have two Davids, as it turns out, and Graf is the first of them. The boss fight under the aegis of his menacing music takes place on the airship's wing. Graf's gear stands off to one side, his arms crossed, while he opts to fight your trio of gears unaided. It's not possible to use combos against him, small as he is, but you can stomp away at him Meanwhile, as much damage as he takes, he'll still be able to halve your HP each turn with his series of super-guided shots, blasts of chi, which toss up what look like Chinese characters. He can also wreck you with the same death blow you saw the red-haired warrior deploy in Ramses' memory against those gears. But after a few rounds, when it looks as though he might hop in his gear to finish you off, Graf is dislodged when Satan makes with the evasive maneuvers. For whatever reason, the wind flowing over the wings this whole time had no effect on anyone, but his turning and diving suddenly causes Graf to slide along with his gear right off the wing, twirling out of sight like one of the giant craft's propellers. He had spoken possessively of the Goliath, but also of Faye that he couldn't let you leave the surface just yet. He seems genuinely taken aback by how powerful Faye's grown, even without triggering one of his catastrophic losses of control. But the most unsettling thing to Ellie is how Graf never targeted her during the battle at all. Of all people, it's Hammer, though, who has the parting shot here, 
as the dark gear comes racing back towards the ship, Satan talks the supplier through arming and aiming the gun display, the controls of which look very much like a light gun arcade game. And then finally, having him fire at the last possible moment. The gout flame downs Graf, and Hammer whoops and goes on about his mad skills, only to be silenced by a smack from Rico, who, along with the others, has survived, after all. This is the bro gamer in all of us getting his comeuppance at last. In a further bit of self-conscious humor, and still more satisfying than the beatdown Hammer takes here, Faye and Satan get the feeling of deja vu and of being viewed by an unseen viewer. Last time, it was when they'd been captured and aboard the Ava transport. And this time, piloting the Kislev bomber, they are once again the target of the pirate Prince Bartholomew. This time, he launches a BART missile. And sure enough, it takes out the flying fortress in a single blow. This is the second of the Davids I mentioned. But as Satan makes his adjustments before evacuating with the others, does he put the Goliath on a course to collide with the attacker? Or is that just by chance? As he does this, whatever it is he's doing, he recognizes the ship which fired on them as the Yggdrasil. And Riley remarks upon Sigurd's methods of disciplining. It all suggests that nature plays as important a role as nurture. In the wake of the explosion, which seems to leave the Yggdrasil relatively unscathed, somehow, we shift to yet another set of viewers, albeit operating on another set of data than the images we've just seen. They have their readouts of vibrations and their hypotheses about the gatekeeper and Shevat's Afel Aura, the name of that flying city, all of which points to the Kislev ship. But only once Graf intervenes to tell him that Fay is on that ship, does Ramses take action. He does so over Miang's objections. And then a cryptic exchange between Graf and her takes place in the corridor. Graf, I believe I already said your tricks will do you no good. Liang, I'm just trying to help. Didn't I get those shackles off? Now you know the vessel will only respond to the chosen one. They don't know this, but he's necessary for Car. He's the very meaning of Car's existence. Yes, I must thank you. After all, you did help me, didn't you? Was it for me? Or for him? Or for yourself? So, it's unclear to me, and I don't remember what happens next in the game at this point, but whether Biang had actually not wanted Ramses to follow, or whether she only put up a front of not wanting him to follow Faye at this point, whether she really thinks that Carr is the more important of the two, that Faye matters for Carr's existence, or whether she knows already that it's really the other way around, as it proves to be the case, and as Carr 
seems to already understand. Graf's silence here, although he's the one confronting her in the hallway, is almost as strange and interesting as what Miang says to him. When did he help her? And what if it's not what she just did is the trick that she's playing here? Was it when she gave the gatekeeper to Kislev? Because Graf seemed to want to prevent anyone, but especially Faye, from using it. Anyway, this is followed up by a comparatively lucid bit of dialogue among the Solaris elders. Disobedience, Ramses's orders are to excavate the anima relics in Ignis and to watch over the lambs. What is he? We can recover the anima relics anytime. Moreover, we learned that he was on the transferred ship. Ramses was probably after him. So it was the trauma. Nay, in this case, Knigrit. It was the severe external wounds. According to the memory cube, we found multiple subjects around him that possess the animus factor. Is it Sufradi, the subject of the M project? Yes. Coincidence? Nay, it is beyond that. They were either attracted to him or... Unexpectedly, it's developing into the same condition as 500 years ago. That does not rule out the possibility he planned it this way intentionally. The transfer point is Akuvi. It's near the Thames. If it is Akuvi, Krellian's headed that way. Krellian himself? What for? It seems they found it. For over 4,000 years, he searched for Zeboim's legacy. Legacy? Is that the technology he was talking about? Yes. This is the Emperor. Molecular engineering, nanotechnology, the land of all creations, the capital of Zeboim culture, resting beneath the ocean of Akwivi. For 19 years, the ethos kept it secret. Is this acceptable, Cain? Yes, it will do for now. 19 years, that coincides with the time when the earth shifted. Indeed, but I don't understand. That technology doesn't seem that crucial to us. He is still a lamb. Giving him the ability to do as he wishes is questionable. There are times when even we do not know what he is thinking. Let it be. I will take responsibility for that. On another matter, weren't you all going to eliminate it? It's just by chance. It is probable the location is Ignis. Anyway, I never believed it would be eliminated so easily. The purge was a failure. This shall never happen again. If the animus are together, it's all the more reason. Yes. Cain, why are you so concerned about it? To us, he is insignificant. It could only be a poison to us. It could never be a remedy. Ananelba, you don't still believe in that, do you? That is merely an illusion, not even an ideal. The result is what I am now. It is as you see it, or rather, is it the emotion you have long forgotten? Cain, 
We are gods. So, parts of that seem to make a little bit of sense, uh, even given the little that we know to this point in the game. Parts of it, however, even with a full knowledge of everything that takes place in the game, might still be pretty hard to follow. Like with what they were saying the other time that I read out, I think it's best that we just return to this once we know a little bit more later. It might not be Tilrin Shavat or even Solaris, but at some point, come back and try to make some sense of that. Sometime later, Ellie awakes on a floating bit of wreckage. The player briefly is in control of her alone until the source of a rattling sound that she can hear is revealed. Faye rummaging around and pops out of the hatch to announce there's only rations enough for a few days, so we'd better get fishing. Very matter of fact about it. Ellie, on the other hand, seems more worried about the others, but Faye insists they'll be fine. In lieu of a fishing mini-game, we switch over to the Yggdrasil. See the proof of his words. Rico comes too, then accompanies Satan in an exploration of the ship he thought was a goner. Bart, a robber in this day and age, a man with an attitude, intrigues Rico when he first hears of him, and in person he proves hilariously frank and apologetic, going on about the greatness of his missiles until the ex-champ jumps him the screen fades out just as it did for his smackdown of Hammer before. A visual joke, serving and gently reprimanding the player's expectations. The wish fulfillment goes back to Faye and Ellie, adrift on the ocean. That O2 cylinder you picked up in the Goliath factory already indicated where you'd end up next. And plot-wise, the reason for this is that Satan didn't think there were any military units stationed at sea. Aesthetically and thematically, though, there are still more compelling reasons for this new setting, the isolation of the two main characters. At first, they're at cross-purposes, as usual. Faye, busy trying to catch his fish, Ellie, deducing by the way they're floating that their gears must be stuck underneath their raft. The latter are deep, too deep, down to reach. The former Right there, within his grasp, the fish nevertheless eludes him, making a fool of him. Overhead, then, so from the depth to the surface to the sky, overhead Ellie points out the flying object Faye last saw upon parting from her when he and Satan had reached the desert. She can name it for him. It's Shavat. It passes directly across the sun, far higher than when Faye saw it before, on some mission, she conjectures. She can't tell him any more, though. He's curious about his parents. It seems this floating city is as far out of reach as of Solaris as Solaris is from the surface of the Earth. Back with Bart, the sea sprays, Stinging his eye, he resolves again to apologize. Sigurd will tell him to do so, and Mason, 
breathlessly rattling on in the manner of the Kislev guard with his mini gear, comes around finally to the same conclusion. Hammer can tell you more info that Bart already knows about Shakan's movements against Nissan, how he's held up by a Gebler for some reason, and we can supply the likely reasons given what we've just heard about these anima relics, even though we still don't actually know what they are or how they might relate to the animus factor, the M plan, that Ananelba, which seems to be a mistranslation of something about the source of something. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, Shavat comes up yet again, Bart learning from Satan when he asks a question for a change, that this ship, the Idrisil's prototype and twin in every way, only able to move on sea and not only on sand, this ship bears the crest of that country. It was said to have been scrapped, but actually was only hidden away by the old king, his father, in that cavern into which they sank after the ordeals of desert despair. And those who made it might be closer than Bart thinks is Satan's cryptic conclusion. With their ability to soup up gears, Bart and his crew earn Rico's respect. And he declares his desire to stick around a while, not to dwell on the past, which he has only just become conscious of anyhow. Bart's apologies out of the way for now. We shift back to Faye and Ellie present only as voices at first, on the dark main, with the music box tune playing. And I've reworked this into my poem such as it is. Endlessly adrift. What do you mean? Just drifting around. I've let myself be carried along. No, Inava, you aided Bard in his hour of need. In Kislev, when it came to it, you gave your all, even for me, many times. It's no good. I'm afraid, deep inside, I'm not really trying to help. That if I did, it was because I wanted to be needed. That if I were, I would have a place to belong. The coward in me comforts himself like that. Not that I don't want to help. Not quite that I do. Not nothing, but sure not whole, either. I was drifting, let along, until I met you, Ellie. Now we're both stranded at sea. I'm sorry. Since we are, I've been thinking. Like you said, doing something is better than nothing. That's why I stayed. I feel the same. It's all right not to feel whole. If you do what you can, if you repeat that enough, Eventually you'll be whole. Until then, some part is better than zero. They sat on the ledge, looking over the ocean. If we're saved, will you stay? I won't go back to my squad. Still, I'm thinking of my country. The army thinks I'm MIA. I don't have to remain in it. I hope, I'm sure you'll find what you want to do. She turned to him. What you said about being comforted. Don't be too hard on yourself. We all want to be needed. Everyone wants to give something to be accepted. Even me. Remember, earlier today, with the emergency rations, 
with a retching roar. He'd coughed up his fish as she'd tried to tell him he would. The last time I had food this bad was Doc's cooking. The hatch was emptied, but they had to eat. Here, I was hoping to save this a little longer. She walked to his side, frankly held out a pouch from her jacket. This should be enough for another day, calorie-wise. As for the taste, dry and crumbly, he choked it down. Whatever you'd share with me couldn't be that bad, could it? She searched his face in the dark. He forced it down. For me to survive, it would have been better not to share it, but it comforted me. I felt content. For your own sake. Yes, for my sake. Selfish, I admit. We're like that at first, but little by little you learn about yourself, and some day you are able to share that important part with someone else. Some day. Ah. With that, she sprang to her feet, shaking her head. What is it? Nothing. It just felt as though I've told you the same thing long ago. I couldn't have said it to you before because we've only just met, haven't we? Yes, it's probably just my imagination. The set piece concludes on that note. We know that Faye has seen or imagined, if you like, precisely that, a meeting between the two of them in the room of Sophia with its slanting light, but he doesn't bring it up now that Ellie seems embarrassed and wanting to let it drop. The extended dialogue here is remarkable for its calmness and introspection compared to the tense moments that characterized all their previous interactions, including the most recent in the firelight, lurid, the destruction of Norchun. In some sense, they have really just met, in the sense of starting to actually talk to and get to know one another. Of course, the prospect of starvation is still there, but come morning it's Faye, the fisher, who spots the ship which will deliver them. The Tem is one of my favorite parts of this game, a kind of beautiful fusion of everything good about Ava and Kislev, with much of Bart's roguish sensibility moderating what other aspect of Solaris, too, there is about the place. It floats here and there in the sea, treasure hunting with those huge crane arms which pluck our heroes from the water and bring them up with their briny gears. That's the first order of business, on retaking control of the castaways on the bright deck. A dolphin man, like France, bids you pay your respects to the captain for having rescued you, and then check on the status of your gears. But the first NPC you meet there, a little boy, strikes his imitation man-of-the-sea pose with a misstep at the end, looking the wrong way for his final move and casting about with the camera, giving you an idea of the sort of place this is. Eminently playful, proud and bumbling, stylish and aspiring. It's a joke that will only make sense once you actually meet the captain. France's resemblance to the dolphin mate of the Thames, Hans, is a playful version of the deep deja vu Ellie was feeling the night before in the ocean. There's a fair bit of nautical lingo mixed in with the good-natured scoundrelry, the trash talk, and the drunken fooling that you overhear as you explore the floating city. 
First, there's a haul of new equipment to check out in the shop. It's better to save your money to upgrade your gears first, since you won't have to fight without them for a little while. But then you'll also want a penguin coat or two, and there's treasures to be found, especially in the supply depot area. Two of the scallywags hanging out there have an uproarious argument about who has found the bigger treasure. And a little girl plays a trick on you with a set of false doors as you go after the four treasure boxes she knows about in that part of the ship. The best items to be found, of course, are not in treasure boxes at all, but in the card battle mating games you can play with the various challengers aboard the Thames. A kid over in the far corner of the supply depot might be the easiest to play first. Really, really, he asks. With a pair of super goggles for your victory. A drinker in the bar has the premier shoes. Together, they're a sort of upgrade of Satan's initial equipment. Glasses and the step shoes. Whichever you play against first, they'll run through a tutorial with you. Essentially, this is a game of speed card game. With 1-2, the call to flip a new card over rather than spit. Another drinker sings the unforgettable lyrics to the Thames' groovy musical theme. I am the master, the best master, Thames' master. Of course, that title is nominally belonging to the captain himself. A dog-faced demi-human laughing his infectious guffaw, he gets the pose right, the sufficient explanation for all his righteous doings. He's a man of the sea. His hospitality is legendary, and he'll really get going once Bart arrives, but he invites his guests, important treasures, he calls them, over for a meal in the beer hall, exulting over its view and all it represents to have it right next to the bridge. There the captain mentions the ethos big salvage job. One of his mates speaks of the tall, tall Babel Tower. Even his hawk eyes were unable to see to the top. He talks about how the reapers, called Vels, huh, like Veltal, are said to come from there. And a little kid in the infirmary says the wind is calling her name. It's a near reference to the Shivat musical theme, but we won't be able to bring all these threads together just yet. There's one other candidate for Master of the Thames, though, and she is called Queenie. Flanked by drunks out on the deck, she'll only accept your challenge once you've bested the other card players aboard. The only way I've been able to come anywhere near winning this battle, and I have won it a few times, is to run back and forth, effectively just mashing buttons. Such is her speed and accuracy. Still, it's a much more doable side quest to me, at least, than the rock-paper-scissors man back in Lahan. And the treasure this time is an item that allows you to use death blows that cost a little less fuel, which could come in handy now and then. They also deal a lot more damage. Mainly, though, this is all about the option, uh, the acceleration of sprinting back and forth, slinging cards. Each character in your party will have the option of playing after that initial tutorial, and each will say something aloud upon winning and something different upon losing. I don't think they say anything if you tie, which is also possible. It's way more fun, I think, than the Kislev or the Ava tournaments, though 
like in the Ava one, you'll be able to challenge Big Joe once the Yggdrasil is docked and break up his amore time, muchacho, and win from him the impressive long dark coat, if you can manage that feat. There's a series of actual gear battles that takes place here too, a couple of which are underwater. And at the end of each of these, you'll temporarily lose one of the members from your finally reunited party. The first battle comes as Dominia and her nominal superior, the serene-looking Calvina, ambush the submarine, leading Faye and Ellie to jump into the fray with the captain's blessing. Ellie and Dominia argue first, Ellie making the case forcefully against Solaris's rights over the so-called lambs. She'd rather be a fool, she says, and stands up for her friends, leading the enraged element to brand her a traitor. That fight ends with the depth charges dropped by Rico and Satan, to Bart's chagrin, another oversight in his reliance on the Bart missile. But as they go off, Dominius snatches Ellie away in her gear. Bart, bitterly laughing afterwards, suggests she might have gone willingly. But Satan silences Faye's angry rejoinder. In an extended scene on the screw elevator, poor drunk, silent for a change on his merry-go-round, having mended fences and started swapping stories, we learn that Margie is once more with the prince for her protection. She appears herself to thank the captain and lets slip once again the running joke of the Bart missiles before the captain this time patches things up over drinks. And Margie suggests that Faye should go rescue Ellie as they rescued her. On cue, we go up to the Gebler airship again where Dominia is disciplined for slapping her prisoner. A very important reunion here, as well as it's Miang who begins to reveal her true power in an icy blue gaze which seems able to cow and even hypnotize with a look. Dominia's remark about her eyes is then picked up by Miang herself, commenting on Ellie's crystalline blue like the surface of a lake. To Ellie's confusion, she calls her eyes beautiful and leaves her alone, unmonitored. Back at the bridge, Miang convinces Ramses to wait to attack, though as Graf promised, Faye is definitely there. Her persuasion is not obviously mystical this time, but she nevertheless makes reference to her charm and to their relationship, commenting that the girls work hard for him. It's her job to be hated. In the dimness that night, we see Vierge departing the ship, apparently escaping. Plainly, this is part of Miang's plans within plans, given that the next chapter is titled Betrayal. So we can easily guess what's coming next. Sigurd has Faye track down Bart, who's hanging out with the captain of the Thames, your other party members are around. Behind that door Bart wouldn't enter before Margie and Choo Choo are there, rescued from Nissan as before they were from Bledevik, and she'll take over the waitress's job of allowing you to swap characters in and out of your party soon. Faye's interruption of Bart and the captain seems not to be minded, but the news of Ellie's return, the crewman calling her Our Lady rather ominously, breaks up their braggadocio at once. She seems a little off, speaking with ellipses, 
not remembering the name of Bart's ship. Faye has her go rest, and Bart's response is illustrative. First, it's his ship, though he lets that go. Then, he trusts Ellie's character. He can tell from looking in her eyes, but for that very reason, he worries about the loyalty and love of her family, which might be leveraged against her. In looking for her later, international goodwill visits and torpedo restockings all but concluded, Faye and Bart hear from the nurse that she's missing. Rico comments she had the eyes of a prisoner. And he should know, just as Bart should be able to tell thugs and charlatans from having grown up around Chacon. The scene at the engine room, the last place left to look for her, depicts Ellie getting barked at by the dog, Martle. Her words, it's an animal, so it can't help it, could certainly apply to the conversations she's had with Faye about their intertwined fate. But the engineer trusts her when she sends him up to talk to Sigurd, just as easily as Rico deceived the guards in Kislev and much more plausibly. She then, behaving in her trance, runs a self-destructive program on the engine. But she's struck down with a cry when she's caught in the act by Faye. Unfortunately, Satan has been on the case too, and he arrives in time to reset the malfunctioning chamber, canceling the mayhem she'd caused before turning with Faye to worry about her condition. He explains that he recognized what Bart and Rico couldn't put their finger on what the dog sensed but couldn't communicate, what Ellie herself, with some wry part within her, seemed to know that she was acting under a powerful hypnosis. The symptoms actually bear a significant similarity to Faye's experiences with destructive behavior, but that isn't followed up on at this point. It seems that Ellie, in her case at least, the hypnotist was a good one and there are no mental scars.